the night, Jesus' words to world changers. And uh, we've been looking at uh, John 13, where we got into 14 last week, and John 13 to 18, those uh, chapters look at the last day, the last night of Jesus's life. And this, starting with the, the Last Supper, going to the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, and the messages, the words that Jesus shares with his disciples are the ones that he wanted them to take with them. These, uh, after Judas, these 11, plus about 100 or so more men and women would go on to change the world. And it's these messages that Jesus leaves them with that were of utmost importance to them. Mark has said over the last uh, few weeks that we all can see that the world still needs changing, right? We, we sit in agreement about that, but if I were to poll all of you about what exactly needs changing, we would probably have differing opinions about what needs changing. If I asked you how we should change the world, we would all have different opinions about how we would do that. And so instead of hearing what Mark thinks or what I think about the problems of this world or the ways to change them, we wanna look at Jesus's words. And we wanna look at his way of changing the world. And then we wanna try to put that into practice. Because these words of Jesus changed the world. His disciples took that message, spread it out. We're still talking about it today. And those words still have the power to change the world. And so we are looking at these messages and hoping to internalize them and to live them out. And this morning's message is called, Show Us the Father. The question or the idea behind that is what is God like? What is God like? And as I was preparing for this and thinking about that question, I thought about Rorschach tests. You guys familiar with Rorschach tests? You've probably seen them before, even if you don't know what they're called. They were developed by Herman Rorschach, right? Your favorite Swiss psychiatrist uh, in, in the 1920s. And they really rose to popularity in the 60s. They're just these ink blots ink on a piece of paper, and they were used to help uh, understanding uh, personality analysis and cognition, and they were used to aid in psychological conditions as well. But the ink blots themselves aren't really anything. They're, they're really anything. They, they could be anything. They're open to interpretation. And there isn't, the psychiatrist doesn't show you waiting for a right answer, but your answer reveals something about you. We actually have a couple that we can look at. Shout out what you see. None of your answers will be used against you, I promise. Uh, I heard bird. Someone in the first service said koalas, which when they said it, I could see it, and now I can't. It's gone. But uh, we have another one up here. I think it, yeah, it looks like, that's what I saw, two guys like high-fiving. Yep. Uh, we have... And this one, this is actually a Bible story. This is Isaac and Rebecca meeting at the well and falling in love. So a uh, good biblical one there. And then we have one more. Uh, uh, looks like uh, two gr groundhogs. It's seasonal. Yeah, two groundhogs. The groundhog seeing a shadow. This one is six more weeks of winter, I guess. Uh, but really, they, there's no right answer uh, there, but... Your answer says something apparently about you. I'm not a trained psychiatrist, so I have no idea what to think about you or even myself uh, based on what we saw there. But these Rorschach tests 
are up for interpretation. And when I thought about that question, what is God like? I thought that that question is a bit of a Rorschach test. What is God like? Your answer to that question, and if we went out and polled people and asked them, what is God like? Their answer is more likely to tell us something about them than it is to tell us about something about God. Now, some of our answers might be closer to reality of what God is like than not, but I think that's true no matter who you were to ask. If it was an atheist, if it was someone who considers themselves agnostic or Buddhist or Jewish or Muslim or even Christians, that as we give our answer to what God is like, it often reveals more about us and who we are than it does about the great I am. And as Christians, we have several ways that we can answer this question. But one, one easy way, maybe the quickest way to get to what is God like if someone were to ask us or what God do you believe in, we might say the God of the Bible. And I think that's a good starting point. I think that answer is right and it's true. But I think even that answer begins to be a bit of a Rorschach test. That when we go to the Bible looking to see who God is, I can come away with a different answer than you can, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And we can even bring all of our baggage to scripture and just see the God that we want to see there. Now, if, if you don't believe me, or if you think I'm off my rocker or questioning the Bible or whatever, there are 45,000 different Christian denominations throughout the world. 45,000. Now, not all of the differences and denominations boil down to that question, what is God like? But it does show that we can work with the same source material and come to different answers about all sorts of things, including who is God? What is God like? If you want a God of war, you can go to scripture and find him there. If you want a God of peace, you can go to scripture and you can find him there. If you want a God who is compassionate, you can open up the Bible and you can find that God there. If you want a God who is vindictive, you can find him in scripture. If you prefer a God who's egalitarian and welcomes everyone, or if you want a God who is ethnocentric and only chooses a specific group of people, you can find that God in scripture. If you want a God demanding blood sacrifice or a God who abolishes blood sacrifice, you can find that God in scripture. This is because the way that the lens through which we read scripture, the way that we ask that question, we bring so much of our own baggage and experience to that question. If you had a good experience with your father, then that probably influences how you think of God as father. If you had a bad experience with your father, that probably influences it. If you've been a father, that influences it. If you've never been a father, that influences it. There's so much that goes into that. But in today's gospel reading, Jesus is faced with that question. Not in those words, but who is God? What is God like? And Jesus narrows our focus and gives a pretty clear answer of what God is like. So let's start reading. We'll uh, open up, if you have your Bibles, to John chapter 14. If you were here last week, uh, then you'll remember that Jesus has just said to the disciples, don't be troubled, I'm going away for a little bit, uh, but you, 
I'll be back, and also you know the way that I'm going. And Thomas says, we don't know the way, show us the way. And we'll pick up there in verse six. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. So Mark looked at the famous words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. More last week, we're gonna look more at uh, the second half of his response to Thomas and then Philip's question. Jesus is building on that idea though of anyone who wants to come to the Father has to come through me. And he says, if you really know me, then you really know the Father as well. And he's with his disciples here in, his, in the upper room. He's been with them for three years now. The expectation is, you really know me. I'm not, plenty of people have opinions about who I am and what I'm here to do, but you all, you really know me. And if you really know me, then you know the Father. And what does it take to really know someone? I think there's a, Jesus is appealing to an intimate level of knowledge when you really know someone, that you intimately know them. I like a definition of intimacy that I heard before. Intimacy is knowing someone fully and being known fully without fear of guilt or shame. And I love that idea of, of intimate knowledge, that you know someone completely. And Jesus has shown himself to these men. They spent three years together, they should really know him. Now, over the last couple of years, I've had opportunity to interview uh, several different authors who have read their work and I've enjoyed them and uh, I've been able to talk to them about the things that they've written. And I, now I, I know them. I have read their work, so that tells me something about them. I've talked to them uh, about why they wrote what they wrote. I know biographical details about them, where they live, what they do uh, as a profession. Um, I've picked up, even in our conversations, personality traits and characteristics that probably, to some degree, accurately reflect who they are. But reading a book and talking to them for 45 to 60 minutes, does that mean that I really know them? No, I know about them, I know of them, but there's plenty that I don't know about who they are. I don't know how they respond to adversity and frustration in their life. I don't know how they treat their family or how they would treat a stranger. And if we went out to eat together uh, and the server came and they were in the bathroom, I couldn't order them a drink. I don't know what they eat or drink. Um, so I don't really know them. But there are people in this life who I do really know. My wife and I have been together for 14 years now, and I'm beginning to learn a thing or two about her. Uh, but I, I know her. I know biographical facts about her. I know when she was born. I know where she went to school. I know her maiden name. I, but I know more than just the details about her. I know what she will do when she's frustrated and when she's stressed. I know how she treats her family. I know that when she comes home from work and our three girls wanna tell 
they're done with dad, they've been done with dad, and they wanna tell her all about their day or they wanna show her something and all three at the same time are talking that she'll slow them down, she'll give each one individual attention as she goes through. I know that she wants a Diet Coke and chicken parm. And if she's in the mood, she'll have a glass of Riesling, but no guarantees. I know her because I've spent time with her. I've had 14 years worth of experiences with her. So I really know her. Jesus expects that his disciples really know him here. The three years that they've spent together have been intense. It's not just that they bumped into each other one year at Passover in Jerusalem and had a good time and they're like, hey, maybe we should meet up again next year and it became their tradition. No, they spent three years day in and day out together. They have watched Jesus heal the lame, make, the, uh, make them walk again, give sight to the blind, that he's cast out demons in front of them. He's had uh, arguments or face challenges from the teachers of the law. They've seen him do that. They've listened to him teach. And the disciples have actually done many of those things themselves as well because Jesus told them that they could, gave them the authority to do that. The three years that they have had together have been intimate and have built up a knowledge and they should really know Jesus in this moment. Jesus expects that the disciples recognize him as the father. But then Philip says, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Philip doesn't get as much airtime as some of the other disciples. The Gospel of John, he kind of makes the most appearances in there. But I, I think of Philip kind of like Peter. Peter was very impetuous and always quick to say what he wanted to say, an excitable young man. Uh, Philip, I think, was similar, if maybe a little bit more under control. Philip, when we first meet him, Jesus says, come and follow me. And the first thing that Philip does is he runs to find Nathaniel. And he says, Nathaniel, we found the one who Moses and the prophets have written about, Jesus of Nazareth. And Philip, or Nathaniel says, Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? And Philip says, just come and see. Just come and see. Philip was eager to bring people to Jesus. As soon as he met Jesus, the first thing he wanted to do was bring others with him. Come and see the one who scripture tells us about. Come and see Come and see. There's another story in John where Philip brings a group of uh, Gentiles who are looking to speak with Jesus to Jesus. He sets that up. He's eager to bring people to Jesus. Philip plays, he's front and center at the feeding of the 5,000. Philip was eager and excited about who Jesus was and what Jesus meant to his people. And in this moment, I could imagine that Philip is just as excited, just as eager, just as earnest. He means what he's saying. And he says, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be enough. Like we're finally at the culmination of what this has been about. He's on the edge of seeing who God is. It's about to happen. But instead of being met with the same excitement from Jesus, he's met with disappointment. Let's pick up in verse nine of chapter 14. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? 
The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. I can hear the hurt, maybe even slight frustration or disappointment in Jesus' voice. Philip, you don't know me? How long have we been together? But these words and this disappointment, I know that Jesus knows that will hurt Philip. Philip is excited. He thinks, he's like, yeah, let's do this, let's do this. And then when he's met with Jesus' disappointment, I'm sure that crushed Philip. That, oh, I still don't get it. I've disappointed my rabbi. But Jesus knew that Philip needed these words. They would sting, but they were necessary. And Jesus' full response here to Philip is actually similar to uh, in the end of John chapter 10. There's a crowd that asked Jesus, they say, just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or are you not? We don't have time to look at it, but in both, Jesus appeals to the work that he has done. That even if you don't believe my testimony about myself, look at what I've done. How could this not be the work of God the Father? And to Philip, you've not just seen me do it, you've been a part of it. You've been there for this. You've done it yourself. How could this be anything other than what the Father has done and is doing? The key to this whole thing is in the middle of verse nine, where Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And that that middle section of that verse, has become instrumental for me in how I understand who God is and even how I approach scripture. Anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Going back to Rorschach test, we talked about how our answer of what God is like that can be all over the map. That it's our interpretation of who God is depends on a lot of things our experience, where and when we were born. But Jesus narrows our focus here. What is God like? Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So what if God was just like Jesus? What if this audacious claim that Jesus is making, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father? He goes on to say, I am am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Earlier in John, he says, I and, the, and I and the Father are one. What if that claim is true? Wouldn't that be good news? That God is just like Jesus. That, in fact, is the good news. That is the gospel. That Jesus is God. Jesus is the word of God. The scriptures ultimately bear witness to Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. That as we read through scripture, it is constantly pointing us to Jesus. And then when we get to Jesus, he perfectly reveals who God is. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus says. We can search the whole universe for answers. We can search all of nature. We can study the great philosophers and teachers throughout all of history. We can rummage through the libraries of the world trying to find out who is God. 
And all the while, Scripture is pointing us to Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you can look no further than Jesus. That is what God is like. And as we look at these chapters, the last day of Jesus's life, I think we get special insight into who God is. On Jesus's last day on earth, or last days on earth, he is telling his disciples, this is what I'm like. This is what I'm asking you to do. And in those stories, we get a bunch of different people who are supposed to represent God. The teachers of the law, the high priest Caiaphas are supposed to be representative of who of God on earth. Pontius Pilate and the Roman government say that their authority comes from God. And so they say, we are like God. The things that we do. But Jesus has a counterclaim that don't look to them for what God is like. Look at me. If the last three years have not been enough to know who I am and what I'm like and what the Father is like, then watch tonight. What is God like? Well, he's not like the high priest and the teachers of the law who lay heavy burdens on their people. He's not like Caiaphas who feels like his power is being threatened and needs a scapegoat. He's not like Pontius Pilate who, in order to maintain power, needs to appease the crowd and is willing to resort to bloody violence of innocent lives to do that. That is not what God is like. God is like Jesus. God is like one who washes the feet of those around him. God is like Jesus on the cross who absorbs the hate and the violence of the world and in doing so forgives the world and takes away their sins. God is like Jesus who even while being nailed to the cross forgives those who are putting him to death. Jesus has shown and will show over the final moments of his life, he'll show Philip, the rest of the disciples, and any of us who have eyes to see exactly what the Father is like. And he has a word for those who believe the lived testimony that he gives us. So let's pick up in verse 12. Jesus continues saying, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And these verses are maybe a little bit tricky. They might sound pretty awesome at first and then if you've tried to put them into practice and you haven't gotten the things that you asked for, then they end up being disappointing and upsetting. Jesus, in those short verses, he doubles down. Two different ways, he says, ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. He's gonna triple down in uh, chapter 15 where he says basically the same thing. Ask for anything and I'll give it to you. Mark's gonna preach on that in a few weeks. So if you don't like my answer to what this means, then you'll have to wait, come back in a couple weeks. But I think there's a couple things that are happening. As we read it, we can hear it as a magic formula that Jesus is giving us a way to get whatever we want, to be able to even do greater things than him, we'll, be able, we'll have the best party tricks. We'll be able to do whatever we want to do if we can do greater things than Jesus has done. We'll be able to ask anything and get it. 
if we just believe. As if belief becomes this magic token that gets us whatever we want. But James, who is the brother of Jesus, later in scripture says, even the demons believe and tremble. I don't think Jesus is in heaven right now giving demons everything that they ask for because they believe in him. The belief that Jesus is after is not just an agreement or a knowledge of who he is or a knowledge about who he is, but really knowing a deep, intimate knowledge and a belief, putting what we know about Jesus into action, living as Jesus lived, living as Jesus calls us to live. Belief is worthless unless it is an active trust put into practice. And so when Jesus calls his disciples or says, anyone who believes in me, he's saying, anyone who lives the way that I have told you to live, anyone who lives as you have seen me live, that's what it means to believe in him. And then when he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will give it to you. Again, this can sound like a cool trick or a magic formula, that if I pray for something and I end my prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen, then I get the thing, I've asked for it in Jesus' name, so I get it, it's done. But I think in that phrase, that idea of doing something in my name, behind that is an idea of, in a way that is representative of me that properly represents me. As you were growing up, or maybe some of you who are growing up, as you went out with your family, whether your family was staying with you or they were dropping you off at uh, an event or a party or something, maybe your parents have turned to you in the car and said, now listen, at this party, at this place, you represent us and our family, so be on your best behavior. I know that I've said that to our youth group kids when we would drive in a van that said Hope Christian Fellowship and I would have to make sure they weren't giving uh, obscene gestures to people as they drove by. Uh, No, our kids kids would never. Uh, But when we would go to like a retreat or a mission trip, I would say, listen, you represent us here. You represent the church. And so let's represent the church well. And so that, I think, is what Jesus is getting at when he says, in my name. He's saying that we, when we call ourselves Christians, when we call ourselves followers of Christ, we bear his name. And we're not to do that in vain. Paul gets into this idea in uh, his letter to the church in Corinth when he says that we are Christ's ambassadors as as if God is making his appeal to the world through us. We carry the name of Christ. And that idea of using the Lord's name in vain, we're often taught that that means don't say, oh my God. And that's a good place to start. Don't feel free to not say that. Uh, I think that is a, a good place to start with not using God's name in vain. But I think there are other ways that we can use God's name in vain. And I think it's attached to this idea of doing things in the name of Jesus. That when we call ourselves Christian, we represent God and we either do that accurately or we do that in vain. And so we can call ourselves Christians and follow Christ, but then when we give in to the patterns and the ways of the world, we are doing so in vain. When we believe that it is our job to change the world and maybe Jesus's way of doing it isn't, it's not working, we've tried that. So we have to listen to the world and we have to get power 
We have to get status and influence, and if we have to fight for it, then we'll fight for it. And once we get it, then we'll use it for God's kingdom. But that's not what Jesus says. What did Jesus do with his power? He laid it down to the point of his own death. And so we can fight like the world fights and say we're doing it in the name of Jesus, but when we do that, we are using God's name in vain. That when we store up for ourselves treasures on earth, when we work hard to secure our financial future and ignore those who are in greater need than us, then we can say we're doing that in the name of God, but if that's what we're saying, we're doing it in vain. We're not actually representing God well. That when we give in to the fears of this world and when we make sure that it's our job to make sure everyone's afraid of the right things, we're not following, we're not representing the name of the one who said do not worry very well. We are carrying Jesus' name in vain at that point. And so when Jesus says, believe in me, he's saying, have an active trust in who I am and the way that I live. And asking anything in my name is asking anything in the way that represents me well, that is aligned with the way that I live. We are Christ's ambassadors. We carry his name and we either do that accurately or we do it in vain. And so Jesus with his disciples on this night is trying to show them the way, show them who the Father is. And when he's faced with the question of who is the Father, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you really know me, then you know the Father. And so do you really know Jesus this morning? Or do you just know about him? Now, if you don't really know Jesus, there is no shame in that. There is no reason to feel guilty or heavy or uh, you don't feel like you have to hide that from the people who are sitting around you. Philip, one of his disciples, had just spent three years and clearly at this point, he did not really know Jesus because he didn't really know the Father. And Philip would go on to change the world. And so if you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't really know him, that's okay. You're right where you need to be. But Jesus didn't let Philip stay there. He invited Philip into more, into a deeper knowledge of who Jesus is. And so this morning, Jesus is inviting you to see the Father by seeing him. He's inviting you into deep intimacy with him. We get to know Jesus by the book that points to him, by digging into his scripture. You can do that on your own. You can do that with others on a Sunday morning, on Wednesday night, in a Bible study, uh, in a small group. There are so many ways to do that and to move into deeper relationship with Jesus by spending time with him in prayer, by letting the spirit have room to speak to you. Jesus is inviting you in to true belief. Not just, yeah, I agree. Jesus is God. Jesus died for my sins. I'm forgiven. I'm a new creation. I agree with that. Jesus is calling in you to actively trust that that is true, to live as if that is true. And he's inviting you to live the way that he lived, not grasping for power, not making sure that you're secure and you're safe, but instead by laying down all that he has given you for the sake of others. He's inviting you to live a way that is marked by humility and self-sacrifice. 
That's the invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples and it's the invitation that is before you today. You're invited to be a world changer. And there are plenty of people trying to change the world. But there's only one way that's gonna work. And it's the way of Jesus Christ. It's the way of the Father who is revealed through Jesus the Christ. If you don't know who God is, if you struggle with knowing, is God truly a good Father? Is he truly loving? Look no further than Jesus. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Would you choose this day to believe in him? To put your active trust in him, to start living the way that he lived and calls you to live? Would you choose to follow him and his way of changing the world? Anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Believe in him, follow him, and your world will certainly change, and you will certainly change the world.